You may be seated. And when you are, when you're seated comfortably, I'd ask that you would open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We're going to be reading the um, entire chapter, chapter 5. Our sermon text itself is Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, the uh, last portion of the chapter. It's been a few weeks since we were in Romans. You might remember that uh, Paul has just made a shift. Um, this is one of those books where he's like got a long, sustained argument. He um, has indicted all of us, um, building um, an argument that we are all in need of the gospel. And then he lays out um, what the gospel is. And in Romans 5, he turns a corner and starts to kind of uh, rejoice in what we have in Christ. And that's going to be further expanded even as uh, the chapters uh, move on. So Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I'll remind you that this is God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning was not, even whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift flowing from many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would help us this morning. Lord, you know that we are a diverse body, uh, young and old, in all kinds of different places in life. And Lord, we are needing to hear from you. Lord, we would ask that you would do a miracle among us, We pray that you would take this one simple sermon and that you yourself would preach it to individual hearts, that you would apply your word by your spirit to our hearts and lives. Lord, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us focus? Would you help us to hear your voice? We'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been celebrating graduations uh, recently, and graduations are an interesting time in our lives, and that's because they're not only a celebration of things that we've accomplished, but they're also times of major transitions in our lives. I think of some of the graduations that you've experienced, right? You dress up. You have a sense of accomplishment. Maybe you're super happy for someone else's achievement and their accomplishment. Your family comes, your friends are there, you smile, uh, you laugh, you take lots of photos. But then afterwards, you start something new. Maybe college. Maybe, maybe you're starting your career There's a reason to celebrate, and there's change, a new identity. One thing closes, and another begins. And we see something similar in our text. Christians have a reason to celebrate. They've undergone a massive change in their lives, If you look at verses 14, 17, and 21, you'll see that sin and death reigned, right? It ruled. It ruled in their lives. But our text shows that that is no longer the case for Christians. Christ's grace has triumphed. You'll notice in verse 21 that grace now reigns for all of those who have put their faith in Jesus. So what reasons does this text give us to celebrate? And how does Christ's grace triumph over sin 
and death give Christians a new identity? These are some of the questions that we'll explore as we examine this passage. And you'll see that the text begins by talking about where we were. It starts by describing where each one of us begins. In bondage to sin, our our text begins by uh, speaking of the totality of sin's reign. That's our first heading, the totality of sin's reign. Paul starts with another one of his uh, therefore statements. He continues uh, from the previous section discussing sin, its consequences, and the blessings believers receive through faith in Jesus. He begins by emphasizing personal salvation at the beginning of chapter five. Then beginning at verse 12, he expands the perspective and connects our salvation to the grand story of redemption. In verse 12, Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul wants you to know about the tragedy of Adam's fall. So he takes us back to Genesis. He takes us back to the Garden of Eden, and he says that Adam's fall introduced sin and death into the world. God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told them that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And die he did. Adam sinned. Instead of listening, instead of yielding to God's word, he stepped out and established himself as his own authority. And as a result, Paul tells us that sin and death spread to all men because as the final words of the verse says, all sinned, all sinned. And did you notice the chain reaction that is in verse 12? Sin entered the world through Adam. Death entered the world through sin. And death spread to all humans because all sinned. And that verb uh, sinned, of course, is in the past tense in English, but it's also in the past tense in the Greek. It's in the aorist tense. It's finished. That signifies a completed action in the past. The idea is that all of us, that all of us sinned in Adam. In classic Reformed theology, we call this doctrine, this truth, federalism or federal headship. And this is a foundational doctrine. It's an important thing to grasp. Adam served as the federal head of the entire human race. He represented us all. The name Adam in Hebrew, of course, means mankind. What Adam did in the garden wasn't simply for himself, but it was for everyone whom he represented. God appointed Adam to act on behalf of himself and for all of his descendants. Now, in our highly individualistic culture, 
it may be challenging for people to accept that we've all sinned in Adam. We're more inclined to understanding facing consequences for our personal wrongs, but the notion of suffering the consequences of someone else's actions, it it seems strange to us. But consider this, there are many illustrations of representation that are familiar to us, that are part of our everyday lives. Lawyers represent our legal interests. Politicians represent our political interests. Even our elders whom we elect, they represent our interests as well, don't they? In Presbytery and at Synod. What about Olympic athletes? The athletes aren't competing simply as individuals, but as representatives of their countries. When an athlete wins a gold medal, he's not simply um, acting on his own behalf. When he wins that gold medal, we say, we won the gold last night. Then we're happy that he is representing us, even though we were just sitting at home watching TV. In the same way, Adam was our representative. When he sinned, we all sinned. And there were terrifying consequences. Consider verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And then if you look down to verse 21, you'll see that it says sin reigned in death. These verses emphasize the universal impact of sin's reign and its consequences. A number of weeks ago... um, as an introduction to a sermon, I talked about what are, what are things that are certain, right? Death and taxes, we said. It's one thing that we all know. Lest the Lord returns and we're caught up in the clouds with him, we will all die. Adam's sin introduced physical death and decay into this world. But his sin also resulted in the corruption and spiritual death of humanity. And we see that, don't we? Uh, We all experience that. Death and disease. How about mental illness? When you see someone out there just cooked by the sun and talking to themselves. Helpless. Broken. Depression. Suicide, hatred, homicide, war. Our brokenness is on display. It is on display. Human nature is tainted by sin. Sin has affected the whole person, including the mind and the heart and the body. The mind is affected in terms of its ability to fully comprehend and accept spiritual truths without the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. 
and the heart representing the inner desires and affections of a person is corrupted by sinful inclinations and selfishness. The body, as part of fallen creation, experiences the effects of sin in various ways, including suffering, sickness, and death. The effects of sin on human nature are manifold. It has led to spiritual death and separation from God. You heard Dean talk about that in his psalm explanation. Scripture says we are born dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. Dead, not sick, not very, very ill, dead. And we're born in bondage to sin and unable to save ourselves. We're born in a state of guilt and condemnation with distorted desires and affections. Sin affects human relationships, leading to brokenness all around us. It brings about a distorted and corrupted state in all aspects, impacting thoughts and emotions and choices and actions and our physical well-being. But notice how verse 14 ends. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. A type is a person or place or an event that foreshadows or symbolizes another. This means that Adam, as the first man and representative of humanity, foreshadows Christ, the second Adam who brings redemption and restoration. You can see that connection in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Christ is the second Adam. There are two federal heads. They're both representatives. And we see that as our text continues. The text reveals the triumph of Christ's grace, which is our second heading. The triumph of Christ's grace. Someone I live with appreciates fireflies. And um, in the evening, she goes outside um, to see their enchanting little uh, light shows. Right? They're kind of like shooting stars, except they shoot in all kinds of um, direction. And you can see their um, beauty contrasted against the night sky. And similarly, as our text continues, you begin to see the beauty of the gospel as Paul contrasts the work of Christ with the work of Adam. Verse 15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many Do you see those words much more in verse 15? 
And if you scan down, you'll see them as well in verse 17, don't you? Paul is contrasting the work of Christ and Adam. The words much more emphasize the superiority of Christ's work in comparison to the consequences of Adam's sin. By using that phrase, by using the phrase much more, Paul emphasizes the abundant grace that comes through Jesus. And the contrast between Adam and Christ underscores the greatness of God's grace in redemption. It highlights the superiority of Christ's work. And you'll notice that God's grace is described as what? Abounding. God's grace isn't limited or constrained by the magnitude of sin Instead, it surpasses or exceeds the effects of sin. While sin brings death, God's grace brings forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. And Paul doesn't want you to miss that fact, the fact that forgiveness is offered as a free gift. If you scan verses 15 through 17, you'll notice Christ's work is described as a free gift Five times. Why do you think he has that redundancy? It's almost as if he wants to notice it, isn't it? It's a free gift, a free gift, a free gift, a free gift, a free gift. The repetition emphasizes that salvation isn't earned by human efforts. It's received as a gift. It also reinforces the contrast between the gift of grace through Christ and the consequences of sin through Adam. Verse 16 says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought Justification. Several of you had birthdays last week. And I don't know what's better, uh, receiving a gift or uh, giving a gift. I had the pleasure of um, watching someone open a gift last week. And um, it was a pleasure to see their smile as they they unwrapped and opened the box. And then as they opened it, and laid eyes on the gift. What's the gift that the Lord offers in Christ? What does the text say? Justification. Verse 17 says, He brought justification. That should make you smile. If it doesn't fan the flame of your heart, that should make you smile. That is your freedom. The thing that Christ paid for, the thing he bought for you. Justification's a big word. Perhaps it's new uh, to you. Maybe, maybe you're not familiar with it. 
Justification is when God declares a person not guilty of their sin and treats them as a righteous person because they have put their faith in Jesus. It's that simple. When the Bible uses the word justify, it means to declare righteous in a legal sense. Justification is a forensic act. It's a legal act. It's the act of a judge declaring a person right in the eyes of the law. And the basis on which God the judge declares sinners righteous is not their own merit, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, which he has graciously given us as a free gift. And this gift is available to everyone to everyone. You see, Adam's work led to condemnation, but Christ's work led to justification. And you see the evidence for that in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase, those who receive the abundance of grace. God's grace doesn't come automatically, does it? It only comes to those who receive it. It comes to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you've believed, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have received an abundance of grace. You've received justification. You've received Christ's righteousness. Christ can't be any more righteous than he is. And that righteousness has been given to you. That's incredible. That is incredible. Rejoice. Celebrate. Don't be robbed of your joy. Don't be robbed of your joy. What a tragedy it would be to receive an inheritance and never enjoy the benefits of it. If you're in Christ, you have been made righteous. Consider verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul is continuing his argument from verse 12, highlighting the contrast between Adam's disobedience and Christ's righteous act. The righteous act refers to Christ's obedience, particularly his sacrificial death on the cross, which holds eternal significance due to his 
life of obedience. Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who trust in him. There's another one of these words, isn't there? Imputed. Who uses imputed? Imputation is when Jesus takes our sins and gives us his righteousness, right? It's that idea of transferring or crediting to someone's account. It's, it's wire transferred to you. It's imputed to you. It's like he swaps our bad stuff for his good stuff so that we can be right with God. How's that for a simple explanation? He takes our bad stuff and gives us his good stuff so that we are right with God. Through his righteousness imputed to us, our lives are changed and we experience newness in him. We experience the transformative power of his life within us. The way he changes us is He changes us is from the inside out. And we move in the text from understanding the work of Christ to experiencing the transformed life in Christ. That's our third heading. The transformed life in Christ. In Romans 520, Paul discusses how the law magnifies the reality and the extent of sin. Verse 20 says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So why does Paul introduce the topic of the Mosaic law here? Paul introduces the topic of the Mosaic law to emphasize its role in revealing the extent and magnitude of sin. It highlights how the law increases awareness and knowledge of sin. The law was never meant to be used as a means of gaining God's favor. It was never meant for that. It was given to reveal sin and to point us to our need of a savior. It only serves to increase the trespass. Isn't that what Paul says? It increases the trespass. The the law acts like a mirror exposing our inability to fulfill its requirements and it highlights the necessity of Christ's redemptive work. The law set a standard of righteousness that no human could achieve. It was given to show the impossibility of attaining righteousness through human effort. It emphasizes our need for God's grace and forgiveness. The law isn't a means of salvation. The law isn't a means of salvation. Salvation has always been by faith. 
We see this exemplified in Abraham who believed and was counted as righteous apart from the law. You see, the law amplifies sin. And yet verse 20 says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The Greek uh, word translated abounded all the more is difficult to capture in English, right? It's one Greek word, but they're trying with four words, abounded all the more, uh, to capture uh, that idea of the one Greek word. But this word, it conveys the idea of, of superabundance or uh, exceeding abundance. It, it signifies a lavish and overflowing measure beyond what is necessary or would be expected. In the context of Romans 5.20, the word emphasizes that where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. It portrays the concept that God's grace is boundless, that it's immeasurable, and that it surpasses the magnitude of sin. You could describe it as inexhaustible and a limitless outpouring of God's unmerited favor and love, surpassing all human understanding. It captures the idea that no matter how great your sin may be, God's grace is always greater and more than sufficient to overcome it. In verse 21, Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This verse reveals the triumph of Christ's grace over sin. Sin no longer reigns over the life of a believer. Grace reigns through righteousness. God's grace isn't passive. God's grace is at work in the lives of believers, transforming and empowering them to live a transformed life in Christ. His grace isn't a passive quality, but an active expression of his love and mercy and transformative power. God reigns in the life of his people through grace. God reigns in the life of you, his people, through grace. Verse 17 was hinting at this. If you look back, it says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christian, you've gone from death to life through Christ. You've received an abundance of grace. The evidence for the gift of righteousness in the reign of lives of the believers 
are shared in Christ. Do you see where it says reign of life in verse 17? Those of us who received the free gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus. Adam was supposed to rule over this world as God's agent, but instead death ruled over him. By contrast, those of us who are justified in Christ will reign in life. Well, you might ask, when? When when does it begin? To reign in life has an already not yet aspect to it. Certain aspects of God's work and blessings have already been realized in the present, while other aspects will be fully experienced in the future. Through our union with Christ, we already share in the Lord's victory and the benefits of his righteousness. We experience the reign of life in a spiritual sense, being justified and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in conformity with God's will. But the full realization of this reign in its ultimate and complete form is still to come in the future when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. If we can peek a little bit into next week's text, you'll notice that Romans 6.4 speaks of believers being raised to newness of life in Christ. Believers have a new or renewed identity in Christ. When it says that believers are raised to newness of life, it means that through their faith in Christ and their identification with his death and resurrection, they've experienced a profound transformation. And that's what we understand from Scripture, isn't it? We believe in regeneration. We believe that a person must be born again. We talked about it. Every person is born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. And what has to happen? In John 3, 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. Titus 3, 5 tells you the same thing. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. How does that take place? It's miraculous. It's supernatural. The word of God says that the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and he illuminates their mind so that all of a sudden now the scripture makes sense. That parable makes sense now. What seemed like riddles is starting to make sense. And our hearts are changed by this spiritual transformation. And we desire to follow after Christ We have an affection for him. We want to follow him. It doesn't come from ourselves. It's implanted in us by the Holy Spirit, a transformation of the heart and of the mind and of the will. God reigns, Jesus reigns in the lives of his people through grace via the Holy Spirit empowering you to follow him. Born again 
Having a new identity in Christ means that you are no longer defined by your old nature characterized by sin and separation from God. Instead, we are now defined by our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our identity is rooted in being children of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ and recipients of his grace and forgiveness. Christ has given us a reason to celebrate. We've graduated. We've graduated from death to life. We were once bound in sin and death, but now through Christ's triumph, grace reigns in our hearts. And this grace abounds beyond measure, surpassing the magnitude of sin. Adam's fall introduced sin and death into this world, affecting all of humanity. But Christ, the second Adam, brings redemption and restoration His righteousness is imputed to us when we put our faith in him, transforming us from the inside out. We are declared not guilty before God, justified by the gift of grace through faith in Christ. And God's grace is boundless and inexhaustible. It's always greater It's always greater than sin. The law reveals the extent of our need of grace, showing that no human effort can attain righteousness. But God's grace abounds even where sin increases. It's a lavish and overflowing measure beyond what is expected. Let your hearts be filled with joy and gratitude. Rejoice in the gift of righteousness and eternal life that you have in Jesus. Celebrate the transformed life you now have in him. And don't let anything rob your joy. Embrace your new identity in Christ. You have been made righteous. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how do you thank someone for such a gift? Lord, have we not unpackaged this gift today and looked in the box and seen what you've given us? Lord, we do pray that you would make us grateful, grateful for this gift. Lord, that we would put it on like a a new coat that was bought for us, that we would wear your righteousness, seeing it every day, walking around, holding it, looking at it in the mirror. Lord, we're grateful. Help us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to keep our eyes on the gospel. Make us a people, a gospel people, loving you. Lord, we'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.